Welcome to the Ralston College Podcast. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Today's episode is a lecture on the famous pre-Socratic philosopher, Pythagoras, delivered in the very place he taught, and by an eminent living philosopher, Professor Douglas Headley of the University of Cambridge. Ralston College was delighted to welcome Professor Headley as a visiting lecturer during the first term of its newly launched MA in the Humanities. And it was in this context that he delivered the talk you are about to hear. In the months of August and September, our students were learning ancient and modern Greek while living in Greece. In this same spirit of immersive educational encounter, we had the privilege of hearing Professor Headley speak about Pythagoras, not only on the philosopher's native island of Samos, but in the very cave in which he taught. Allow me a moment to set the scene. After ascending the mountain's steep and winding dirt roads as far as our rented cars could take us, we hiked to the base of the steep steps carved into the face of the rock. From there, we ascended that stone ladder into a cave which felt darker and cooler because of its contrast with the brilliant summer sun. Hot, weary, but full of wonder, we then heard about the famed Samian philosopher in the very place in which he had instructed his own disciples. There, Professor Headley gave us not only an introduction to Pythagoras and his place in the philosophical tradition, but also an overview of the imaginative motif of the cave in literature, philosophy, and religion. The cave is a place of solitude and asceticism, also of birth and rebirth, and perhaps above all, of contemplation and illumination. This lecture will offer a vivid glimpse into our first degree program. You'll hear references to early writers like Eusebius and more recent scholars like Werner Jaeger. You'll also hear the ringing of nearby bells and the low voices of wandering tourists. And at the end, you'll hear our students engage with Professor Headley, asking the kinds of questions and making the kinds of connections that often continued in Samos long into the night. This lecture is also the first of a series of lectures given in our MA program in the humanities that we are thrilled to share with you through this podcast. Please join us here as we bring you from week to week lectures by the distinguished scholars who have contributed to this inaugural program. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Thanks for listening. Not just because Michael, James, and I have come here from Cambridge, that I will begin by quoting one of the two most eminent Cambridge Platonists of the 17th century, Rafe Cudworth, who called Pythagoras the most eminent of all the ancient philosophers. Now, that's really striking. After all, he's referred to as a Cambridge Platonist. So, <laughs> so why do we call these thinkers uh, Cambridge Platonists rather than Cambridge Pythagoreans? So I want you to bear that in mind as, uh, as a question. So here's Cudworth saying, look, his school is in a way surpassing the Academy and the Lyceum. Um, now, 
The key to this is what Lloyd Gerson calls Ur-Platonism. It's the thought that uh, in the Platonic tradition, Plato was not seen as the originator of that tradition, but in many ways the most exquisite exponent of it. So because of the beauty of his dialogues and the richness of his treatises, uh, that's why the school was thought of as Platonic. But within the school, there was the thought that, in fact, Plato was just articulating the core ideas of the one true philosophy, which of, course, of which, of course, uh, Pythagoras was a key and perhaps, as Cudworth says, the most eminent uh, figure. Now, in the Renaissance, uh, many thinkers were uh, completely captivated by this notion of a magisterial uh, pre-Platonic uh, Platonist. And part of this had to do with the thought that Pythagoras was a great traveler. So Pythagoras had brought together various different traditions and had distilled them. And this has a long tradition. So St. Ambrose uh, suggests that uh, Pythagoras was in fact a Jew. Um, and this Jewish connection is, I think, very interesting in terms of a whole sense of a, of a Western tradition and that theme that I was talking about, about the tension between the pagan and the Christian inheritance, but also the synthesis between the two. Because the apotheosis of Pythagoras uh, is very striking in just this respect. So Johannes Reuchlin, a figure that some of you may not have heard of, but he was a German who lived from 1455 to 1522 and taught in Tübingen, a very important part of the foundation of the ancient University of Tübingen, he thought that the Samian drew his stream of learning from the boundless sea of the Kabbalah and that he was uniquely able to understand the secrets of Moses. So on this view, Pythagoras is a, is a Kabbalist. Um, so instead of being just a purveyor of ancient thought, as he was for, for a Renaissance figure like Ficino, uh, he became a mediator between Christianity and ancient Jewish wisdom. Um, and in fact, Reutlin uh, compares the, the Tetractus, the, the holy number of the Pythagoreans, uh, with the uh, four letters of, the, of the, the divine, the ineffable divine name, Yahweh. So, uh, that's just a bit of background to this sort of reception of Pythagoras and why he was so immensely important for a, a particular uh, platonic strand. Now, he's uh, born in 570 BC, <laughs> dies around 495. Um, he's supposed to have been the inventor of the term uh, philosophy, according to Augustine. Uh, obviously, the key doctrines of Pythagoras, of course, the problem with the pre-Socratics is that uh, there's just so little uh, text that we have available and so much of it is, is reconstruction. But it would certainly seem that metempsychosis, so some doctrine of reincarnation, some notion of the harmony of the spheres, uh, this number mysticism, of which the... Uh, the Tetractus is then particularly important, and uh, vegetarianism, 
Um, and some of the ladies here may be interested or pleased to know that he was uh, quite possibly a feminist. Um, anyway, there, there are reports that there are lots of lady philosophers uh, in his uh, circle. Now, one important aspect, certainly for the tradition, how far this is true of, of Pythagoras himself, is the link with Orphism. So, uh, Orphism, of course, is this uh, Dionysian religion. Um, the central focus of, uh, of Orphism is the dying and, and uh, the suffering and death of the, the, the god Dionysus. And Pythagoras is seen as a sort of purifier of this Orphic uh, tradition. I'm now going to move on to the cave, but what I want you to bear in mind in relation to the cave is this sort of key element of the key, as it were, ur-Platonic dimension of Pythagoras, the contrast between the mathematical, the intelligible, the sweet touches of harmony, to use Shakespeare's phrase, and uh, the material uh, between appearance and reality, and of course linked to that experience, I mean, aesthetic experience or immediate experience and illumination. Now, um, the cave is obviously a monumental uh, symbol in human experience. Think about the oldest artworks that we know of. Um, uh, think of those cave, extraordinary prehistoric cave paintings. So the, the cave has this integral role in, um, in the, the sort of imaginary of, of our ancestors. Uh, the cave also plays a, a role in Empedocles, a pre-Socratic philosopher. Uh, Jaeger thought that the cave was meant to refer to the terrestrial world and thought this notion of this cave was Orphic, basically. Um, and so linked to this is an idea that the life of the soul is linked to a higher region and that somehow that, you know, salvation is linked to liberation from uh, the exile in which we are in. Now, you can see elements of this in, in Plato, of course, with his conception of the cave, uh, where you've got the shackled prisoners who are you know, amidst the skii, uh, the, the, the shadows, and the puppets that the puppeteers have cast on a wall by means of the light of a fire. It would seem here that for Plato, the cave image is an analogy for the human condition, for our education or our lack of it. So the prisoners, if you remember, are in a cave, chained, unable to turn their heads. As a result, they see only what's directly in front of them. And what they see are shadows cast by objects behind them, which are illuminated by firelight further behind and above them. The objects are carried along and extend above a low wall behind the prisoners. And the bearers of these objects are hidden behind the wall, so they don't cast any shadows, but occasionally they speak, and the echoes of these words reach the prisoners, and they seem to come from the shadows. So the prisoners can talk among themselves, and they naturally assume that the names they use to apply to what they see and hear, the shadows passing in front of them, and Socrates offers a pretty grim assessment of this, that the shadows of the artifacts constitute the only reality the people in this situation could recognize. And Socrates goes on to explain what this cave image means. He says the cave is the region accessible to sight or perception. And a few pages later in the sun simile, Socrates dis distinguishes between the visible realm and the intelligible realm. 
uh, between things that are grasped by perception and those which are grasped by reasoning or intelligence. Now, central to this is a notion of orientation. So Plato talks about the uh, real task of education as the, uh, as in a sense, a kind of art of orientation. It's a techne tes periagoges. And the educator's task is that of the turning souls around, a metastrephane. So this turning or this conversion is very central. Now, I want to move to the Christian period, and I want you to bear in mind this cave image, and particularly in the Greek Orthodox world. Uh, and I now want you to think of the birth stories of Christ. There are no accounts of the cave in the actual gospel narratives, and there, is, there are no caves in the Western iconography. Uh, Christ is born in a house or a stable, but in the Eastern church, it's a cave. Now, this symbolism, uh, which uh, we find uh, referred to in uh, Origen, uh, we find uh, Eusebius, using the language of the Hellenistic mystery cults, right? So he sports, he talks, instead of the word spelion, he uses the word antron, um, which is then specifically cave in this cultic sense. He speaks of the holy cave, the hieron antron, the mystical cave, the mysticon antron, the, even the soterion antron, right? So the, um, the Salvific cave, or the theon Antron, um, the, the divine cave. So uh, this is very interesting. So the notion of a redeemer figure who comes from on high, but in a way is born in the bowels uh, <coughs> of the earth. Uh, that, that's a very fascinating uh, symbolism. Now, in the ancient world, there's a significant in. in uh, issue here, and that is the rival religion of Mithras, right? Now, Mithras is a religion, you'll probably know of the sacrifice of the bull, but it's also a cave religion. So there's a polemical dimension to the fathers uh, in attacking the uh, Mithric, Mithric uh, notion of the cave. Um, and the cave is interestingly polymorphic, so you've got the dimension of the darkness of the cave. The cave is a place of demons. So uh, in the Fathers, you find often an association between the cave and also the desert. So uh, the cave is a, a place where in the darkness, you're encountering uh, the demonic, you're encountering evil, and of course, so in a sense, it's appropriate that the redeemer figure should be born in the midst of suffering and evil um, as part of this redemptive process. There's also an interesting link between the cave as the place of birth, also the cave as the place of burial. And so in, in the Greek fathers, you often have this association between the, the cave as the place of the birth and the cave as the burial, but also the cave as the place of revelation. So you're in Patmos, you will go, uh, and I hope you will enjoy that absolutely remarkable cave that is the cave of the, uh, the revelation. So there we have the cave 
as the meeting point uh, of the earthly and the divine. So that's just an introduction into the figure of Pythagoras, who, of course, is a rather mysterious figure. He's a much debated figure because of the scarcity of the sources. He's immensely important in terms of his, his reception. Um, and then it seems to me that this idea of the cave, this image of the cave, uh, is an absolutely central part of our inherited symbolism. And it's, I think, particularly interesting that in the Eastern Christian tradition, this ancient symbolism is maintained in such a striking manner in relation to the stories of Christ's nativity. Thank you so very much, uh, Professor Headley. For the, those remarks which made this cave, again for us now, a place of illumination. Thank you, and revelation indeed. Thank you very, very much. Um, I think we could just take a minute or two if there were any questions just hot off of the, 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 the talk, so to speak, that you're burning to ask. We won't pause here long, but if there's anyone that has a question they'd like to pop in right now, go ahead, if that's all right with, with you, Doug. Absolutely. Uh, um, uh, yes. Could, could you say a little I, bit more about uh, like number of Plato? Like, you know, like number four is very important for Plato, and uh, for Pythagoras. Well, I guess I just would like to hear a little bit more on like what you take the number to represent in Plato's thought. Well, I mean, the, the uh, Plato is the primordial anti-empiricist. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, one. A prima facie way of thinking about the world isn't kind of the stuff that we encounter, the ordinary dry goods, the uh, material things that we encounter. Uh, but uh, if you think about it, there are also other um, items that we encounter in reality that are um, not material, that are not uh, bound by space and time as a particular material object is. A one classic instance of that would be a number. Um, so mathematical truths are, moreover, not just uh, non-material in that sense, but they are eternally true. So one of the great contrasts that Plato inherits from uh, Parmenides, probably, is the contrast between unchanging being and uh, the fleeting nature of the realm of becoming. Now, uh, you and I will pass away. Um, the uh, human cultures, kingdoms, nations, empires grow, wax, wane, disappear. Uh, numbers remain. Yeah? Two and two will be four, uh, you know, when uh, uh, you know, we are all uh, distant memories. So that sense of there being realities which are um, A, non-material, and B, eternal verities, right, unchanging, that I think is, is a key element of this distinction that we find uh, in Pythagoras and in Parmenides between a realm of true being and a realm of uh, and a material realm, which is in some sense inferior to that domain of true being. 
Then, of course, if you think about the, the, the entire Western inheritance, the, this notion of an intelligible realm, a realm of eternal, intelligible, non-material realities, are then put into the mind of God. And so that intelligible realm becomes identified with the I am who I am of Exodus 3, 14. Does that address yeah. your uh, yes, so... You mentioned Adriana. that um, in many ways that Plata uh, Platonism dates back even to Pythagoras. What ideas of, of Plato's came ultimately from Pythagoras and how did those, how did those get passed down to Plato? What, what well, a couple that we've seen. So, so, for example, um, of course, the difficulty with Plato is always writing in dialogues. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, we have a few letters and the, the veracity of those letters are, are doubted. But, um, I mean, I think uh, uh, the seventh letter is, I think, the most beautiful document, and some scholars actually think that is, that is uh, a genuine letter. But generally speaking, we've got these dialogues. We've got a few reports that Aristotle tells us quite a lot about um, what Plato was saying. But generally speaking, we've just got these, these dialogues, which are these imaginative um, uh, dramas that, that he presents. But... Having said that, it would seem that Plato presents something like a doctrine of reincarnation. So if you look in the Phaedrus, for example, you'll see that there's a view of some notion of karma, yeah, that, that you know, uh, live a bad life here, um, you will um, you know, be, be reincarnated in, a, in another form. And, uh, and if it's a bad one, it'll be an unpleasant form. So this looks like a straightforward version of, of, of karma. Uh, another is this, uh, this notion of the harmony of the cosmos. So that the, the cosmos is in a deep sense attuned. I mean, literally attuned. There's a harmonia. And that this is um, linked to mathematical structure. So you see that in the Timaeus in particular. So in fact, ty, ty, we know that, um, that the, the figure, Timaeus and the Doctrine, is a, is a Pythagorean. Um, so those would be... Uh, now, in, in the later Platonic, we don't know what uh, Plato's own attitude to, to food was, but um, there is a later tradition in Porphyry, for example, who was a vegetarian. And um, so there's, there's links with the... You know, there's generally, I think, one could say another link, what probably would be... Uh, a certain ascetic view of life. So one of the key themes of um, the, one of the key definitions of philosophy, we could say the two definitions of Platonic philosophy, the melete thanatu, the practice of death, and the um, homoiosis theo, the likeness to God. Those are two ways in which Plato defines philosophy. And they are rather Pythagorean, rather Orphic, yeah. Um, it's complicated because there also seems to be links with Pindar, and, and there, are, there are elements of Orphism in, in Pindar as well, of course, but those would seem to be Pythagorean elements in Plato. One last question. Well, it's not a question, but um, 
I mean, maybe he didn't write about food, but he does have Socrates eat meat in the symposium. Yes, yes, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so he's probably not too into vegetarian. <laughs> <laughs> mm. uh, lastly, okay. So I guess I was just wondering, like, what is the quality of the like reality of the numbers in Plato? And um, yeah, I guess like could you contrast that with like Kant's first critique and the way he talks about geometry and number? Like, is there like a lot of continuity there? Do you think? Or is it well, I mean, uh, the the uh, I mean, the generally speaking, there's a there've been a lot of um, mathematicians who've been Platonists. Frege is the most obvious among recent uh, philosophers. Um, uh, so if you're wanting to look for a sort of um, platonic theory of mathematics, then Kant is not the obvious place to go, but there are lots of uh, you know, serious contemporary uh, or re fairly recent philosophers who've been out and out Platonists about number because, of course, there's something puzzling about the conventionalist account of number, and that's just that it's so effective in science, right? I mean, if, if number is merely this, uh, this convention that we've constructed to help us negotiate the world, um, count jars or grapes or whatever, how is it that we're able to calculate how to send a rocket to the moon. Um, and if the calculation is slightly off, then it'll be destroyed. Uh, you know, i.e. that mathematics is a key to the deep structure of the cosmos. Uh, now, uh, it just seems like a gigantic accident that this uh, you know, counting convention should be able to map the deep structure of the universe in such a remarkable way um, if you're not going to assume that there are indeed, as Plato and Pythagoras claim, uh, sort of mathematical structures of the universe itself. Kant thinks that mathematical truths are really features of our cognition. Yeah. Yeah, They're synthetic yeah. a priori truths. Well, thank you so very, very much, uh, Dr. Headley. That was just wonderful. You've been listening to the Ralston College podcast. Today's episode was a lecture by Professor Douglas Headley, who is one of the foremost scholars of the imagination working in the fields of philosophy and theology today. If this lecture has sparked an interest in his work, let me recommend the first volume of his trilogy on the imagination, published in 2008, which is entitled Living Forms of the Imagination. If you're interested in the MA program to which Professor Headley contributed this marvelous lecture, you can follow us online and subscribe to our newsletter and to this podcast for further updates about the progress of our students and to hear further lectures given in this program in this exciting inaugural year. I'm Stephen Blackwood. Till next time.